Dr. Dale on Quail, bringing you the latest news and views about all things quail in Texas. Brought to you by the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation, preserving the wild quail hunting heritage of Texas for this and future generations. Major support for this podcast comes from Gordian Sons Outfitters. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this month's Dr. Dale on Quail. I'm Gary Joyner with the Texas Farm Bureau, and it's great to have you spending time with us today, a terrific topic that I know you'll enjoy. Dr. Dale Rollins has been on the road in recent months visiting with those in the quail community about topics of interest. This month is no different. He spends time with Paul Melton. Dr. Dale, let's turn it over to you and Paul. Well, thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be uh, with y'all and uh, our audience here in the new year. i got a special guest today. I'm on location at the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch out here in western Fisher County. And I have a special guest today, a guy named Paul Melton. And uh, Paul is, uh, is a jack-of-all-trades and uh, can uh, speak very eloquently and very knowledgeably about a wide range of topics. I know you're going to enjoy our our discussion with him today. I first met Paul, I think it was about 1992. I used to write a column for the Livestock Weekly, and I'll tip my cap to the readers of the Livestock Weekly. That reaches a lot of people in West Texas. And in about 92, I got a call from this guy named Paul Melton who started talking quail with me, and I could tell pretty quickly he wasn't your average rancher that just liked to go quail hunting. spoke uh, in depth about quail management, quail ecology, and that started us off on a relationship that's, uh, I guess, approaching 30 years now. So I want to visit with Paul about some of his ideas and some of his um, principles and so forth. Uh, but before we get into the before we get into the uh, quail management per se, Paul, uh, I had the opportunity to, to bird hunt with you one time, and uh, I tell people that I consider myself a decent shot on quail, but I don't shoot at every quail that flies up. You do, and you kill it. So uh, tell us a little bit about your quail hunting background. When did you get started, and kind of, kind of uh, where did that all start at? My dad was a quail hunter from the Old South, kept bird dogs around, um, had a group of business guys uh, that were self-employed like he was, and in Abilene area, and uh, he hunted quite a bit. Uh, he had come to the old school and been a hunting bird dog, not a real aficionado bird dogs like me, but they were just part of the partial of the outdoor experience. Um, I started uh, shooting uh, doves at seven, and uh, he was taking me quail hunting. His friends didn't want to be bothered with a kid with a gun at that age, but I shot my first one with him in Stonewall County uh, when I was nine years old. First one on the wing, nine years old, and that started me off pretty active. I shot a good bit then, but I had my own dogs at the time I was 13 and really hit the ground running. I didn't care much about athletics or team sports or anything at school. Uh, I'd rather hunt and I worked jobs enough to make uh, odd job money to have stuff. Started driving, had a car from 13, even though you couldn't drive in Texas until 14. I had one and usually had two bird dogs in it and a gun anytime if I could find a place to go and had access because of family connections and business connections with my father to pretty good quail hunting. There was no leasing in those days. That was unheard of, but, um, and stayed with it even through college, managed to shoot quite a few birds and following my college years, I had some other activities right out of school. I had a, from the time I was about 22 till I was 26, I didn't have a bird dog in that four year period. Might've gone hunting a time or two. Uh, in 1976, got a hold of a setter dog that was kind of a change in pace to me and lived on a ranch for the opportunity to bird hunt a great deal. And 
started keeping records pretty detailed in 76. It was a result of reading an article in a column in Field and Stream about a southern bird hunter, John P. Bailey, who was in the Nash Buckingham swing of things. He appears in Buckingham's literature a few times. And he was pretty much a, a ne'er-do-well quail hunter like me, I guess. And I've kept pretty active record. I've, I don't keep detailed diaries or journals like he did, but I have kept on calendars the dates of the hunt, the number of birds shot, the number of shells expended, and uh, maybe a note about a dog that did something particular. I have those calendars all stashed away, and they, they've got the cumulative tale of my quail hunting career since 1976 through, last, uh, through yesterday afternoon. Well, that's great. And like I said, I don't know anybody that keeps any better records uh, on the number of birds and so forth than you do up here. Uh, and uh, so we're we're talking about the mid seventies, basically. Take us back. What would that be? Thirty five, forty, forty five years, I guess. Now we're right here on what what then was called the Martin Ranch, now the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. Tell us about what the country might have looked like then, what the quail situation might have been then, because uh, we're going to contrast that maybe as we move forward with the podcast. Well, I could speak about this ranch because the night there was a. Uh, the field, pretty active field trial club out in this country uh, in those days. There was a lot of prominent people that bird hunted and ran dogs. There was a lawyer in Sweetwater, who's long deceased now, named Jim Pearson. Many people there remember that ran English setters, and I liked his setters. And uh, I rode scout for him on some trials, and Mr. Martin was a, a sporting fellow, and his friends let him, and he used this ranch, and it was an avenue for lots of pointer and setter trials where the all age and shooting dog trials, you know, the big running dogs were held here on this property. And, I rode on it as a scout, and the brushwork is not as intensive at that point. Mr. Martin hadn't commenced any real active brushwork, and it was a great deal of cultivation. It was no CRP, naturally. That was about 12, 15 years pre-CRP, and there was a the, the crop fields were cotton land and milo land and interspersed in these rolling hills and uh, prairies uh, at the intersection of 180 and 611. And there were... There was no thought about conscious quail management. Quail were totally a byproduct of him grazing cattle and farming. And again, that that was present across most of the landscape, wasn't it? That's that same level of mismanagement, if you will, but uh, the positive benefits of having quail at that time? Or? Well, I think you're, you know, the college range managed professors would tell you this is stretched in good years to be 20 cow to the section country, and this stuff got pushed to 30 and 35 like all the other did out here. If there was grass, eat it. it. It amazed me at how much more cover we have in managed ranches now than we had then, but bird numbers don't reflect it. We had a great period of above average rainfalls coming out of, I mean, I was a child in the 50s drought, but the 60s and the 70s and, and the early 80s were above average rainfall years. Well, through till 88 was the first real decline. The 87 year was a boom, one of the biggest quail years ever in history. Parks and Wildlife moved the limit to 20 birds in 1987. A lot of people are surprised when I talk about blue quail today and blue quail in Fisher County and some of the surrounding counties. What were the blue quail numbers like back during that heyday of the 70s and the early 80s? Well, on the ranch we're sitting on right here, the blues outnumbered the bobs by a large percentage. Uh, that was the objection among the field trial crowd. Um, 15 miles east here on the ranch I currently own, have owned since 1988. Uh, I hunted on it as a kid because my dad and a couple of his friends had some interest in a dry hole over there, and they vowed not to go back because the, quote, darn blues had the bird dogs messed up to the point I don't think we saw but one or two coveys of bobs all day and 15 coveys of blues, and I was the only one athletic enough to get any shooting, didn't bother me, 
but they, they they never went back. The blues predominated this part of West Texas. And again, that's that's always been uh, one of the quail enigmas, if you will, in, in my career is what happened to the blues because they're better competitors and smarter and everything, and yet they basically died off and went somewhere else uh, in the late 1980s. You got any hypotheses on what happened there? None, whatever. Uh, no, if anything, land, well, certainly between 1988 and, and the last blues I saw in my ranch in active flying numbers in the mid-90s, uh, range conditions exponentially improved in quality on the ranch I owned because I, I went into a stark program of reduced grazing and intensive management for forage production to get some ground cover for nesting cover, which you and your students had identified as the biggest deficiency you thought at the time out here. Uh, where those improved conditions did move blue quail out, I don't know. They've also disappeared from the marginally managed properties as well. It's, it, I, I haven't had an, I haven't seen a live blue quail on my property since uh, 1999. And Paul has uh, several uh, honors, if you will, that uh, that I bestow upon him. And one of them is called I call him the King of the Blobs. Because he's killed, I'll, I'll let him talk about it, but uh, Blob being a bobwhite-blue hybrid. And you've gotten a fair number of those over your hunting career, haven't you, Paul? Fifteen total. Fifteen. Uh, when you started writing your article and you were talking about them, I think it was in the 1990s, and you and Ray Sasser became interested in the anomaly, and, or you'd had a call from a hunter that had killed one, and you mentioned to me you'd never killed one. We tried hard. I killed two one afternoon, took you back the next day to the same place. We got up lots of birds, but we didn't get you a Blob. Uh that was in Kent County. Uh, I happened to have a lot of experience on ranches, I guess, where Bobs and Blues still overlapped in the 90s. I was still leasing some stuff to supplement my shooting at home in the 90s, and, and they were the counties where they proliferated. It was, uh, you know, in, at, at Yale and Borden County, Kent County, Stonewall County. I've killed them in Stonewall, Kent, Borden, Fisher, um, Howard. Uh, yeah, there, there's something about a line there, roughly from Big Spring up to uh, approximately Matador, Motley County, that if you look at the literature, it, it seems like a fair number of the blobs, if for whatever reason, seem to come from those areas. Well, I want to move on. Uh, again, I want to I want to recognize uh, some of your shotgunning skills real quickly, and uh, tell us about this uh, this award you got uh, for this game called Halise and maybe explain real quickly what Halise is for those of us that aren't into those kind of games. Well, Halise is a uh, substitute for live pigeon shooting or a, or a pseudo box pigeon shooting, which I've been an active pigeon shooter. I've shot competitively at live pigeon since 1976. Um, been on several U.S. machination teams in the European theater for the world championships. Um, had some medals in Europe, some bronze and silvers, tied for some championships. Um, the Halise thing became bigger and bigger in Europe as some of the countries quit shooting. It became big in Texas. The Dallas Gun Club's one of the preeminent field locations in the country. Uh, I became interested in it enough to get ready to shoot it some uh, as a compliment to the pigeon shooting that I was doing. I won the world championship in the senior division. They 60 and overs in 19, 2017. I went back to Portugal in 18 and won the silver medal in the same field. And then uh, won a bronze in 18. And uh, in 19, was uh, didn't shoot Halise in Europe, uh, but I did win the silver medal in the World Live Pigeon Championship for the 60 and over seniors. 
still active, still compete, still go, uh, like the competition, and uh, been an All-American at hand-thrown pigeons, a game that's not as popular in Texas as it once was, but I've seen the very best shotgun shooters in the world, and I'm just one of several. There's a lot of them better than me. Well, I want to relate that to quail hunting because uh, if, if Paul goes out and nearly any time he goes, if he wants to shoot 15 birds, he'll shoot 15 birds. And if he tells you he had a bad day, I've come to, to learn that that means he missed one that day. <laughs> so, uh, again, a great shot. And, uh, uh, again, his knowledge of uh, the land up here, uh, of, the, of the system, if you will, of the quail equation, I first introduced Paul to one of my grad students about uh, 2007, and he was going to call Paul and find out about working over cooperatively on Paul's property. And about 15 minutes later, this young man, uh, uh, Matthew Snoop, Matt, I hope you're listening up there in Pennsylvania. And Matthew said, who is this guy? <laughs> said, he's not your average rancher. And I said, no, Paul's not your average rancher. So anyway, we've been working uh, cooperatively with Paul since that time, and also we've been... Uh, beneficiary uh being the here at the research ranch he serves as the chair of our advisory committee and we appro- we appreciate that service as well paul again just to wrap up your shotgunning skills um who would you list as your, some of your mentors oh i don't know i, I learned to shoot on my own altogether uh, from a hunting standpoint game is one of the last of a generation of enough birds to shoot i mean i started shooting trap and skeet when i was a senior in high school uh my old man considered it a waste of money and called it rich man's games, but I persevered at it and played all through college. Um, it did give me a foundation in shooting. It taught me a little more about it, but I'm, I'm the last of a generation that's going to learn on wild birds. Um, I, I've shot mostly all game. I don't shoot any clay targets now. I, I mean, not by any, I don't have any aversion to it. I just do other things with my time. The, the, the shooting, I had a competitive shooting friend that was a mentor in a lot of ways in life, uh, William Perdue, William Clay Perdue. He's a member of the European Live Pigeon Hall of Fame. Uh, wealthy bone of the manor fellow that, I don't know, we became well-read, uh, total, totally opposite of me in so many ways. Born to the manor, Ivy Leaguer, um, extraordinarily wealthy family, large plantation holding in Alabama, but really a, a shotgunning sportsman. We struck up a friendship early on, well, after a shoot-off we'd had with each other. I first met him in 1976 at the U.S. Flyer Championship in, in Dallas. He won it, and I was the, in 77. He won it, and I was the runner-up, and I, I did win it in 79. Uh, he kind of started asking me about my intentions competitively. We had similar interests. Uh, I was a voracious reader, as he was. We started traveling together. And he had an extraordinary collection of best guns, European best guns, and of all. I mean, he really understood best best doubles. He shot side by sides. I was an over and under shooter, of course, like most Americans. I did get my first exposure to best guns hunting with him. He was about ready to do anything to get me out of that pump gun. He gave up. He spent a fortune, I think, really. It would be a fortune on eighteen thousand acre property he had to bring quail back in every form and fashion, a cooperator with everybody in the Alabama wildlife. Uh, scientific community, and like many others over there, finally threw the towel in. He, he came, started quail hunting out here with me and sort of became enamored with the land. He, and he was, in fact, it was the reason I uh, probably bought a ranch. He he had the benefit of hunting with me on some ranches I had leased, and I never thought much about it. They were long-term leases, but 
and leases that I'd had year to year, but I'd had them for a lot of years. And he told me if I was ever going to take control of my shooting, times were going to change. That leasing was going to be too fragile and that I should look to buying something, which easy for him to say, but he did put his money up. He would, he did say, I'll buy something with you if you'd like. And I, I said, no, I think I can pull it off by myself. And I did. And he, he stayed at my property a great deal right up to his death. Uh, he'd been gone a long time now. He passed in 97, but uh, not a day goes by that I don't swing on a bird or think about something interesting. We did together at duck blind dove field or uh, in the quail truck, get behind the dogs. Yeah, those memories are uh, worth a fortune, no doubt about it. I'm gonna, I want to move forward a little bit and talk about some of the uh, the management and so forth that you do, not only on your ranch, but again, that you've got a lot of expertise in. And, and I'm going to refer to that generically as brush sculpting, which is a phrase that I coined back in 97 to kind of talk about the selective uh, removal of brush and to enhance wildlife habitat like that. And it turns out that uh, we, we had two brush sculpting symposia that year, one in Uvalde and then a month later on the Melton Ranch over here between uh, Roby and, um, and Abilene there. And as I recall, it was 105 degrees on October the 5th. It was a hot son of a gun. But when I say brush sculpting uh, the way you manage your property for quail, Paul, what, what does that mean? What does that phrase mean to you? Well, what I was trying to do was modify the component. I, obviously, the ranch, as I took it over, would it had been subsistence ranch. If, if you need evidence of that, the property was bank, a product of bankruptcy. A bank owned it, uh, the initial core part that I bought. And it had been heavily grazed beyond what I think is reasonable capacity. That ranch, even worse. It was in much worse condition when I bought it than I remembered it as a teenager when I hunted there previously. I, I had I knew the owner, I had had some dealings with him in the horse business, and when I was still in college, I carried horses down there to sell to him. And so I was on the ranch. Never dreamed it'd be for sale. Never dreamed I'd own it. I, uh, it was heavily infested with brush. It had been the product. It had a large pear infestation. Some of it really that undesirable carpets of pear that I finally ascertained looking at old records that it had been in the Great Plains program been chained. The chaining uprooting mesquites and being a temporary fix, I guess, and a lot of soil disturbance, but it did spread prickly pear. Uh, the property had an awful lot of similarities, though, in its brush components to ranches in South Texas that I knew were very successful. The large, I, I, we've discussed this with Daryl Eckert. I can't remember the taxonomy on all the different pear species, but the large clump pear, the Engelman or Layman, one of those, that large clumps of pear rather than the ground pear on the ground, the stuff that rises to the size of a, a mott like your pickup truck and gets to waist high. I found that stuff to be quail beneficial and all, all around wildlife beneficial. Dogs, horses, men, everybody pretty well figures out pretty quick how to stay away from that stuff. The ground pair was a little more insidious because the ground cover carried it, covered it up and gave you problems. I had trees in brush that was regrowth mesquite and old growth mesquite. I have very good soil qualities over there. It's some large bull mesquites on the property. I began by trying to copy of some ranches I had hunted on in South Texas that had had some influence of early people at the Clayburg Institute. In fact, I remember calling Fred Guthrie and talking to him about his Beef Brush and Bob White's book and the application of a roller chopper here or there. I opted for the roller chopper as the fastest and most expedient way to change land the quickest for the dollars. And so it was the best range management tool and your range management colleagues don't like the tool. And I'm not talking about an aerator. I'm talking about a blade type chopper like used in Southern uh, Palmetto control and whatnot in Florida and Georgia, a timber tool. 
I found that that gave me the ability to break the soil up, open up ground, and get a shot in the arm into hard-packed, compressed soils that had never had water percolate down in them. And we did real good. I started growing grass. I mean, I... And people, I remember being at a field day and somebody asking, you were involved in it, it was on a ranch north of me. And I, I said, I'd, we'd done this work. And somebody said, well, how many pounds per acre did you plant? And I said, we didn't plant anything. This, is, this happened as a result. And they, they were incredulous. I mean, I had a grass carpet there. I had grown all desirable. I had brought side oats, grandma back, plains bristle grass, several grandmas. Uh, the silver blue stem was prolific. All your nesting cover stuff was there. So... It, it it did. I expanded on that and went into fire right away. I started burning the first time in 1987. And believe me, you can get some resistance in the community when you bring something like fire in, when the whole world has been told forever, there's nothing worse than a range fire. Well, to me, there was nothing worse than the condition we were in. It took a long time to grow enough fuel to burn it up. But we have practiced burning on my ranch, as you know, ever since. Every year we've done some burning on my ranch since I've been there. I continue to do it in a rotational pattern. And I think if I had to say something about the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch and my time and involvement in it, the single thing I'm the most proud of this ranch accomplished in 2009, I believe, you held a, you had Dr. Butch Taylor come up, and we conducted the first fire school for managers that gave certification and graduation from the Texas A&M Forestry Service course. I think it's through A&M. The first time we recognized it was a long, hot August week where we've culminated in doing fires over here on the property, doing our final test over. I thought that exposed more people. I think back about the people that were at that and the scope and the amount of land that they manage. Some of the largest ranches in Texas had their managers here, and and they continue to use fire today in their ecosystem. Well, we're going to – that was a memorable summer, and I uh, appreciate Dr. Taylor and Dr. Hennett uh, coming up for that. And uh, here in about two months, we're going to have a, a podcast on prescribed burning with um, – the ins and outs of that, so y'all be sure and stay tuned for that one. Um, Paul, let's talk real quickly. And again, you use fire more than anybody, and politically, it ain't always the proper thing to do. Uh, but but you've done a great job with it up here, and we're trying to mimic here on the western side of the county and and be able to show people to how to appreciate fire, if you will. Let's talk about how we wound up here, where we're at today, and that's on the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. And uh, a little bit about the odyssey that, that wound up taking the Martin Ranch and, and making it the Rolling Plains Quail Research Ranch. And I'll set the background. Uh, we entertained some, um, some friends from the Richard King Mellon Foundation for three years worth of good quail hunting back starting in about 2004, as I recall, and showed them some good quail hunting. And when I first met them, I said, what you guys need is a ranch in West Texas and let me manage it for quail research. And I didn't say that flippantly because they're big players in the conservation fund and the conservation fund is a big player in the whole tall timbers picture down there in uh, Georgia and so forth. So uh, obviously they're deeply vested in quail and uh, quail conservation. And it wasn't too long after that. Uh, well, in fact, I guess we kind of signed the deal when we were uh, finishing up a quail hunter over in your place. I'll never forget it. Cleaning birds by full moonlight over a, a water trough there. And, uh, I guess we convinced them that maybe they would like a ranch in West Texas. So can you take it from there and talk about the next year, about kind of how we evolved into what, where we're at today? Yeah, I I knew uh, one of the brothers, the principals of the Mellon generation that was in charge of the foundation uh, from the competitive shooting. I mean, we'd, we'd shot live pigeons together, his wife and I. So we knew each other. Uh, his 
executive vice president and uh, the director of the foundation was a very avid upland hunter i first introduced him to you we were seeking some funding for your bob white brigade to get it up and running and i took him i picked him up and took him he stayed a week with one of your kids that might have been a real shock treat but he came away (laughs) very inspired and it resulted in a nice six-figure grant from mellon foundation they came back and hunted with us some and i struck a great friendship up with him we we but first spoke about it, and I think, well, Dale left after that bird hunting. There was a little more enticement after that. I think there's nothing like three limits of birds sitting in the sink, the last dregs of the martini pitcher drained dry, and the embers of a fire with about six or seven bird dogs laying in front of it uh, at my house. And uh, I think we finally put plans together, and they said, go find me a ranch. I don't want to buy a giant one, but we'll buy one. We'd like to get involved out here. We'll figure out how to do it. Uh, I want one that you like, and I don't want to be bothered with having to look at a bunch of stuff. I I had tried to buy this Martin Ranch myself from the heirs previously, years of starting in the 90s and again in 2000. I'd had discussions with that as the heirship had taken place. To no real avail, there were multiple heirs. Uh, it struck a chord at the right time. When I did come back the next time, the thing was under lease cow management and the family members got together and they agreed on a number and I said, I'll buy it. Uh, I had full intention of buying the ranch for no other reason than to own it. If it didn't work out for the research ranch, I remember calling Dale and I said, I got a place I think you'll talk about. Uh, the good news was I called the, uh, principals at Mellon and said, I've got this property found 4,700 acres and I've signed a contract on it and I'm going to buy it. Uh, are you interested and do you want to fly down and look? And I remember my friend Prosser Mellon saying, well, why do I need to look at it? If you put your money in it, I know it's all right. And that became, over the course of a year, the condition was that I come lay the ranch out like I had done mine, do the road and infrastructure with my equipment and stuff. Uh, Mike Watson, the then executive director, took a very hands-on approach, came down watched the progress over several months. And I think was here, we turned the ranch over to them and over to you in 2007? 2006. 2006. Yeah. We spent a year working on it right. over here. Uh, water lines, infrastructure, get the uh, facilities remodeled to the extent that someone could live here. And started, Dale took over and the rest is history. I mean, this has been a laboratory and been some amazing number of students come in and out of here. It's a very, very accomplished thing. It, it It's it's problematic that we're also in a statewide quail decline or we still keep playing the cyclical nature of quail. We don't see, if you're in sheer numbers, we don't have a very good, very good record, but looking at the amount of research that's been done here and the ability to try some things, I think you've put more stuff in print for the, this was, this was needed. We had a lot of people that had ranches, recreational ranches in the Texas rolling plains from the top of the panhandle down to San Angelo. This fit, uh, in, I, Obviously, you reflect on the great success the Clayburg Institute had for South Texas bird hunting and hopefully aspire to have something like that here. And we're still struggling with it, but we're, we're trying to make it work. Now, I'm going to speak a little bit more bluntly because Paul speaking, it can be pretty blunt from time to time. And he told me about uh, two years ago, he said, Rollins, if you were a football coach, you'd be fired because, again, we've, we've had low quail numbers here the last three years, too, so we struggled like everybody else. I hope it was part of that was at least in jest, and I think it was. Paul, you mentioned a phrase back uh, a little bit earlier in the podcast that uh, that I think is significant, and I'd like for you to expound upon it, and that is the phrase subsistence ranching. What do you mean by that? Well, I didn't mean it to be derogatory, but obviously unsustainable ranching with the plant 
and climate community we live in in this area, meaning boom and bust. Uh, the consummate overgrazing, of course, you've got to think that grazing has had a large part to do with Bob White's. I, I have to remind myself constantly that when you read the history of this country, we don't have near the great history they have in the South, we're, we're newer, but when you consider this was part of the Comanche domain until 1879, my ranch was settled by the Newman brothers a month after Mackenzie put the Comanches north, and they began in 1879. Uh, the this was a short midgrass prairie. There's frequent mentions of the uh, prairie chicken encounters by the settlers and only an occasional discussion about the Virginia partridge in the drainages and lowlands once you come west of Parker County probably. Therefore, the quail was not here. I think they're the product of the fact that we have more brush now, mesquite, so we had overhead cover and we changed the grass component and we have a bigger fork component. The Forbes being uh, necessary for Bob White production. We're not a grassland anymore, and it's certainly not a prairie chicken country anymore. I think the change in the, 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 the fencing, no fire, total fire suppression, and I don't think anybody got out out here and made their mind that we were going to overgraze this land. I think that some of these ranches got used to an abundance of grass because of an abnormality in our climate situation, and then when we reached a point when it didn't rain or normalcy may have set back in. We were stuck with an enormous number of cattle on the range. Um, there's nothing wrong with a guy trying to maximize his land, and I have no problem with what anybody does with their land. That's their business. That's part of America. Uh, is it sustainable for wildlife? No. Did it become an issue? Did subsistence ranching start to come to mind? In my mind, it came when I found that ranchers weren't buying ranches. You can't buy ranches above $200 an acre and think about the cow business and pay a ranch off like people did in the 30s, 40s, 50s. When you started reaching land prices that reached any, half of what they are today, your buyer was looking for recreational benefits first. Therefore, the shift had moved away from cattle to either quail or deer production or a combination of both or maximizing the ownership. There was no need. Economic benefit from the ranch was not the goal of those parties. And therefore, the subsistence ranching that had existed all those years in my mind where you grazed to the maximum, fed until your banker wouldn't loan you any more money, and then did something desperate and sold out, it, it didn't benefit the land, although it still surprised me at how many quail we had in those days. But subsistence ranching is detrimental to quail as we know it now. We do all we can do to grow the grass we do. The successful properties that we know of even in a year like this are very well managed with quail in mind. Well, and as we uh, as we sit here today, this is in February of 2000. January. I'm sorry, January 2021. Uh, boy, I tell you, some of the country, especially north and to the west here of the Research Ranch up towards the Red River and Panhandle, is as hard as I've ever seen it right now. So the, the drought, the low cattle prices, whatever the various calamities are, but it, uh, it really looks tough right now. Hoping for some good rains to bring us back. Um, again, Paul, this was formerly the W.T. Martin Ranch. And that day when you called me, I'll never forget, you said, quote, I think I found a plum, end quote. Uh, what, do you, what did you like about, about this property that you thought would make a good candidate for a research ranch? Well, I liked it better for the research ranch than I did for myself. First, a great deal of highway frontage. You had to be able to find the thing. It intersects on pavement on 611 and 180. If it's going to be a classroom, people had to be able to find it. Uh, secondly, it was a microcosm of an awful lot of the ranch country between, say, Ballinger 
and Canadian. You had a mix of rangelands, some cultivation, small amount of cultivation, which is minimal, and you had a combination of great exposure to CRP grass here that was a component of, of a large number of ranches in uh, this Rolling Plains area. You had brush diversity. You had some of the ash juniper country that, that, that predominates. You had a mesquite overstory. You had pear. You had various treatments from the past. It gave you an exposure to about everything to research I thought that was there in a central location. And, and I, was, I was, was right. It does hold every component that pretty well exemplifies itself on most every ranch from here north. And what I'm telling you is, I guess, is when Paul calls something a plum, it's going to get your attention because, again, he knows what good quail country looks like and, uh, and what the potential is for some of this. Back early on, this was in 7, 2008, we were doing helicopter counts, and we were doing them on the research ranch, but we also used Paul's ranch, which is about 20 miles east of here, as a check. And so we fly and we count the number of birds we see. So if you can imagine the research ranch, and if you imagine a, a paper target that you shot with a load of number fours, have that mental image in your mind, and every one of those pellet holes would be where we had a covey of quail observed. And then we'd move over to Paul's, and I'll be dead gum, and his would look like it was shot with number eights. He'd had, uh, he'd have twice as many quail as uh, what we had, which I... I kind of was very humbled by and again, but uh, then I, I realized Paul's been working at that for 25, 30 years. So he's got that place uh, looking sharp and, and doing good. And even this year when things are in such a doldrums, you're having pretty good quail numbers this year, aren't you, Paul? I'm hunting. It, yeah, if I wasn't so conservative about it, I mean, I, I'm, I'm a consumptive user of wildlife. I like to see my only bird watching is usually over the barrels of a 20 gauge. I, uh, I'm having really fortunate, but I had a good rainfall situation, a 23-inch rainfall norm, and I had 2561 uh, of moisture, which gets us above normal. I had it at good times. Uh, we had a setback with the ice storm in October. I would have had a lot more cover. My range cover is good for the most part, although there are parts of my ranch, either due to management practices that I've got engaged right now, or weather, or a combination of both, that aren't good quail country right now. But in the long-term goal I have that make it better, I'm moving three to five coveys. I only hunt perfect days. Let's get that straight. I don't get up and go hunting all morning. I hunt in the afternoons. I'll go this afternoon because it looks great. And the conditions are going to be good. Uh, I'll run dogs for the peak period in two and a half hours. Big running dogs cover lots of country. I either hunt on a horse or I hunt out of a gator so that I can cover and get the dogs. There are big running dogs. When I say that, I mean my Garmin shows 785 pointed and you got to get up and go get them. You've got to cover a lot of country to find a lot of birds. Uh, the fortunate thing is my juvenile ratio is good. Although we had, we had cattle on the ranch through the summer in a, in a grazing stalker program that came off September the 1st. And I was on the property a lot during the summer and was surprised the number of broods I was getting up the time. And I commented to you, it looked like we went into the, we went into the nesting season in really good shape last year. Fortunately, I'm, I think I can continue on with a normal harvest and I'm limiting myself to a bird per covey, which I tend to do. Um, I, I may be overly cautious, but I, I still think that I've got potential to shoot several hundred birds this year. I'm on schedule to do so. I won't worry about it. If I harvest 400 birds off 4,000 acres that, that, you know, they're there. Um, we're, I took to caution your your thoughts that we might be hurting for feed this year and implemented feeders on my ranch again. I'd had the feeders stored since 2002, I think. I hadn't had them out in 18 years. 
we got them out, serviced them, put them out. I have them out at the rate of one, uh, 50 of them on 4,000 acres, one to 50, one to 80 acres. And surprisingly, out of the total number of birds I've harvested this year, only three quail have been what I call welfare quail. They've been over there at the feeders. Uh, my birds are predominantly showing the typical crop contents you'd expect this time of year. Uh, rag, uh, some ragweed, which even though we were scared we didn't make any seed, I have some ragweed, a lot of broomweed, and some greens are now starting to come into the mix. I guess uh, our birds over here are more Milo junkies because uh, they, they tend to like that Milo pretty well. Uh, we're going to talk later on about uh, some new research that we're going to be starting out here at the Research Ranch on uh, supplemental feeding in another podcast. I'm 65, and I'm probably your average or slightly younger than average quail hunter. I mean, there's a whole lot of quail hunters that if it wasn't for Kawasaki mules and artificial knees, probably wouldn't be out there right now. Um, I guess wrapping it up here, Paul, again, uh, and, and in your role as advisory, uh, chairman of our advisory committee, we're not doing that great a job out here. I mean, we could, things could be better. Where, should, where or what should we be looking at to try to make our situation? I mean, we ought to be the crown jewel. We ought to be rivaling you and Rick Snipes and some of these other players that are perennial powerhouses. But our numbers, I mean, they've made a little bit of a comeback this year, but they're nothing to brag about. What do we need to be doing differently? I don't know. I, I've, I've reached outside the box and experiment on my own property. I don't have any scientific training to make me a quail biologist, so I... I don't want to put my thoughts on people, but I do things just to go find out. I'm, I, I did a grazing thing this year that just would be totally the antithesis of anything you'd hear in management. I burned and then put cattle right back in on top of that burn trying to change the I'm trying to change my plant composition a little. I've got an old world blue stem invasion, which is pretty common across the rolling plains. I don't find it as detrimental perhaps as you do or some other people. I mean, it's better than no cover at all. Uh, I think it can be managed through grazing and my grazing last year was targeted at changing some of the components. I did that following up some summer burns. Summer burns are a landscape-changing situation. When you burn at 12% humidity at 105-degree day, uh, you'll, you'll, with a large fuel load, you will change the composition. You will kill prickly pear. You will kill some mesquite trees. Uh, I went back in and followed it with a roller chopping treatment on the carcass of that pear to get some soil disturbance in the ground, and I had some very favorable response last year. It's not huntable right now because of lack of cover. Now, I think next year, in changing my grazing program, that'll happen. I, I think we've got to completely change. We, habitat is here. Um, your work with parasitology through the research work that Dr. Kendall's doing, funded by this, is an interesting thing to me. Although, I personally, and I'm not a scientist, personally, I still have birds that had them all through the boom year of 1670, because, even though I worm was present in a large number of those birds. Uh, I worm exists. If, if, if there's a panacea and we could fix it with medicated feed, my gosh, everybody would have quail again. And I, I hope that's the case. I hope we can get FDA approval and that thing, that tool becomes available to everybody that wants to spend the money to do it. And I don't think it's a replacement for habitat. I don't, but obviously habitat alone here, you haven't provided yourself with the number of quail that your habitat indicates you should have, in my opinion. Something, some component keeps us from booming out although your 15 and 16 years were exemplary. Well, again, we appreciate uh, we appreciate the foresight that Paul has, and I think after visiting with him, you can kind of get an idea of 
Uh, like I said, he's the smartest man I know, regardless of what the subject is. <laughs> I often say that the best friend that a quail has is a cowboy with bird dogs. And uh, Paul exemplifies that. Uh, I guess I ought to give you a chance right here at the end, Paul, at least, to brag on your favorite bird dog. So, so give me give me an idea of who your favorite bird dog was, and some kind of one of the perhaps most indelible points that you've enjoyed over a fifty year career. The greatest bird dog to hunt birds over and put them in the bag uh, I got was a puppy I raised, uh, an English setter puppy. Um, that litter scattered around Abilene through some pretty prominent quail hunters, doctors, lawyers there. A commander-bred setter bitch that belonged to a local attorney that hunted a great deal. And an Orchard Valley Skylight setter dog that I bought or got as a wedding present when I married in 1976 the first time. Um, that nick really worked and some great bird dogs came out of it. A male dog named Mike, uh, the product of a lot of time to hunt. Getting him when I was 29 years old, I could outwalk a horse. I remember when somebody was talking about me starting to horseback quail hunt again. A friend of mine commented and said, you know, good, it'll slow him down. <laughs> I, uh, uh, I taught that dog an awful lot of things. I taught that dog, that he retrieved thousands of doves. And my, all my bird dogs at that point retrieved doves. And I went dove hunting every afternoon. That was before the morning hunting in those days. Uh, he could do things, and I had the time to make him. He, he to put birds in the bag to make things right, and he was the greatest dog I've ever seen on cripple recovery. And, and he could mark like a Labrador. He could mark the longest falls on a multiple rise. Um, it was an anomaly. I mean, I didn't really know what I had. I had 10 good seeds from, from the time I was 29 till I was 38. I had that dog. Um, he was the greatest dog I ever saw to put birds in the bag with. And I mean, my, my friend, Mr. Purdue used to be an awesome of the things. I, I taught that dog to flush on command. I know that runs up against the backbone of every pointer and setter guy in the world, but if you want to kill birds and you're behind the bush, you talk about get set. It's almost like calling pull. Mm -hmm. And he was, he'd do it time after time after time. It was overtrained, but he also wanted to put birds in the bag. You, you, you can't go back and get after a dog that runs one up after you do that, but he, he didn't make mistakes. Uh, the greatest bird finder I've ever seen. You have a pastor of her name for as an English setter female, a Havelock blacksmith female that I was graced as a gift for the guy that used to come out and work his dogs from Tennessee. He, he brought that dog. Uh, she was named Ellie May. Um, she was the daughter of Havelock blacksmith. And she was a big setter, a homely dog, but a big, large-ranging setter. She could really run. She was very headstrong. I got her when she was a year old because she was too much for the guy that had her. Um, we had a tough time bonding, but she was smart. I was more the guy that drove the truck and she ran. And I, I'll be honest with you, she really was the greatest bird finder I've ever seen. I mean, if you had to put dogs down and you had to find birds, I mean, I, I've hunted with friends that were not as knowledgeable or acquaintances that people that I'd sold ranches to that'd say, let's get Ellie May back down on the ground. Well, it meant pick, that was the dog was finding all the birds. And she did find enormous number of birds. It was pre-Garmin tracking collar. I got my first tracking collar because some friends of mine got tired of her being gone or holding up the evening coming in because she was pointed and we were waiting on just a regular habit with me. Until I got a tracking collar, I probably didn't know how good she was because by the, I was now finding this dog pointed seven and 800 yards away galloping the horse over there. Uh, how many times, how many birds she must have found that I never got to before I had the collar? She wasn't a self hunter. She'd come back and find me. She was just finding birds. But the, the Garmin did identify how many birds she had. And I had her for through some great years. She had she was part of the ups and downs. She came to my life and in uh, at a time when we've had these cycles and whatnot. But she's continued to find birds and did. Uh, I had her from the age of one and a half until she passed at 13. 
She was the greatest bird finder I've ever seen. I had an opportunity to, to watch Ellie run in point. And, uh, yeah, she could flat cover the ground. And, and uh, again, we, I guess we all deserve one good dog like that. And some of us have been treated more than one like that. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners, Paul? Just keep the faith. Let's keep funding this research. Let's find a way. Let's see what the answer is. Let's don't quit because we have one victory. Let's 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 try to make this thing last. It's a great game. It's a shame that to think that, you know, future generations won't know the pleasures we've had here. Well, again, we thank you for your time today, and I thank you for your expertise and your willingness to share that with us. And I want to just mention a couple of other podcasts that we're going to be recording in the future. One of them on the tracking collars, one of our board members is Steve Snell with Gundog Supply. I'm going to have Steve on board here in a couple of months, and he's going to be talking about the tracking collars. And then, like I said, we're going to be having one on uh, the politics of prescribed burning coming up here in a couple of months. So stay tuned for those. Again, thanks, Paul, for the time to, to come over this morning to the research ranch. And with, with that, Gary, I'm going to turn it back to you in the studios. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Dale. And thank you, Paul Melton, for your passion and for all that you're doing for Texas quail, and I agree wholeheartedly. Let's keep the faith going forward. I hope you've enjoyed this month's episode of Dr. Dale on Quail. This program and past programs can be found on the website of the Rolling Plains Quail Research Foundation at quailresearch.org. I'm Gary Joyner of the Texas Farm Bureau. We look forward to visiting with you next time on Dr. Dale on Quail. Support from Gordian Sons Outfitters makes Dr. Dale on Quail possible. Gordian Sons, the finest hunting and fly fishing shop to be found. Find out more at gordiansons.com.